0: Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously interesting books. This week, another in the occasional series, Conversations with Translators. My guest is Mark Polizotti, who's an author, notably of a biography of surrealist André Britton, publisher at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and acclaimed translator from French, of books by a wide range of writers, from Gustave Flaubert, to France's most recent Nobel laureate, Patrick Modiano. In his recent book, Sympathy for the Traitor, a translation manifesto, Mark speaks up for the translator in the face of multiple misprisions.
1: There are a lot of very, very cultured people, very re- well-read, who still instinctively feel that translation, uh, a book in translation is not really reading the book. You know, You're reading a kind of a, a second best whereas I like to think of translations as being works of literature in their own right, uh, you know, if, if done well.
0: Some may view translation as the poor cousin of literature, but what I particularly liked about Mark's book is that it in no way feels defensive. His advocacy for translation is robust.
1: So what I'd like to get away from is the sense that translation is like medicine. You know, I guess I'd better read this Italian novel because mm, it's, you know, it's good for me and it makes me seem cultured. The fact is, They can actually be wonderful. Uh, They can be just as enjoyable as anything written originally in English. They can be just as meaningful.
0: Not for Mark, the view of translation as something servile, a rote tracing from one language to another. A good translation, he writes, offers not a reproduction of the work, but an interpretation, just as a performance of a play or a sonata is a representation of the script or the score, one among many possible representations. I think of it as analogous to a good cover version of a favourite song that finds the essence of the song and recreates it differently, that makes the listener hear the song in a way that both preserves and renews it. Mark's family background is Italian, but it was France that captured his imagination when he was young. When we spoke on the phone recently, he began by telling me how his interest was first sparked.
1: I remember when I was a young child, uh, my uncle, who had been in Paris in the army, just made this remark that seemed completely out of the blue that Paris was a dirty city. And I thought, oh, I want to go there. (laughs) (laughs) And and so uh, and I finally had the opportunity to do that when I was 17, um, partly thanks to uh, my art teacher, who was a a great Parisophile and really encouraged me to do it. And uh, I had the opportunity to take a a year off between high school and and university and spend a year in, in Paris and consolidate the French I've been learning for the last six, seven years, whatever, uh, and, and absolutely fell in love with it. And that was, you know, the beginning of my life of crime.
0: Well, I, th- I think you have one of the best origin stories of any translator <laughs> I've, I've, I've come across because um, it's quite rare to to begin quite as early as you did and to plunge in with, with quite such a challenging text. Maybe I could get you to um, to just say, you know, if, having found yourself in Paris as a teenager, how you quite quickly turned into a translator.
1: Uh Yes, completely by accident, which is, I think, how all the, you know, all the good things in life happen. Um, I was in Paris at, at the age of 17, uh, taking the, you know, the, the, the year between um, uh, uh, high school and university and trying to decide what I wanted to do in life, which uh, at the time I thought might be law. And I happened to be taking uh, I was I was on a study program and the program put me in a class at the University of Nanterre where I was completely above my head but you know struggling as best i could to to keep my nose above water and uh it so happened that the professor was a young guy uh and we had Struck up a bit of a friendship. Uh, you know, he was he was interested in what this stupid young American was doing in his class. We we gotten to know each other a little bit. So he invited this avant-garde novelist to the class one day. Uh, it was a friend of his, and whose whose book was on the syllabus. And it was one. This was in the mid nineteen seventies. So of course it was, uh, you know, the sort of the post Finnegan's Wake wave was going through French literature, and everything was. Uh, You know, made absolutely no sense because it was very uh, avant-garde, very experimental, these word games and and, uh, strange references to things that nobody else knew. And, you know, syntax was thrown out the window, et cetera, et cetera. Anyhow, I had read this book and thought uh, you'd have to be absolutely crazy to try to translate something like this. So the day came. The author came. He gave his spiel. And afterward, uh, I went up to see the professor about something. And he happened to know that I lived diametrically across Paris from Nanterre. So it was, you know, it was, it was it was a bit of a commute. And he said, well, I have I have a car today so I can drop you off at least part way." I thought, great. But he said, but we also are going to be taking uh, this novelist whose name was uh, Maurice Hoche uh, who was involved with the uh, the telkel group, which was a group of intellectuals, writers, novelists, and theorists that sort of concretized around people like Derrida and Roland Barthes and Philippe Soler and Julia Kristeva and others like that. They were sort of the nucleus. And at the time, they were the great intellectual current that was going on in Paris. I mean, they were the thing, you know, very hot. So to meet someone who was even, you know, tangentially involved with them was already quite a thrill. But you know, Maurice was was 50 years old, and I was 17, and there was a you know bit of a gap there. And so anyhow, I find myself in the car with the two of them, and they're they're chatting away in the front seat, and I'm in the back, going, Oh my God, I'm in the in the car with a real writer. You know, to me, this is just like the, the, the absolute ultimate. And we stopped on the way uh, for a glass of, uh, well, for, for, uh, to stop off at a cafe because Maurice really didn't like going more than about 10 minutes without a whiskey. And so he was there with his scotch. And I, at 17, of course, was there with my little tea and lemon sitting across the table from him. And my, the professor went off to make a phone call. And I found myself sitting in front of this guy thinking, I've got to say something because I'm going to look like an idiot. And the only thing I could think of to say to break the ice was, gee, how interesting it would be to translate your novel which, of course, I figured he would just let go, right? Mm, but no. Little you know, knowing. He, uh, I figured, yeah, he'd just ignore it, and then that would be that. Um, but his, his head snapped up, and he said, great idea, why don't you do it? And I thought, okay, dolt. <laughs> and so we got back in the car. I told the professor, you know, you could drop me off at the nearest metro, and Maurice turned around and said, no, 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 we're having a dinner party at my house. You come, you know, come, come. us." It. Like, okay. And so we get there, and in his apartment are uh christopher and philippe salaris and roland bars and all the people who would you know who had been studying uh during my year abroad uh it was it was like you know going to mount olympus and all of a sudden Mm. all the gods were there and during the evening he would come back he came back to me several times he said so so you're going to do it you're going to you're going to translate the book he was really serious about this and i thought well you know poor naive man he doesn't know what he's what he's asking i've never translated anything in my life i have no idea what this means it was just really a conversation starter but i agreed and uh over the six months that i was still in paris uh, i you know did my best and uh and sort of piece together, uh, or at least began to piece together, how you how you go about this business. Um, and he and I would get together periodically and review the pages, and he'd give me some critiques. And um, and we actually remained friends until uh, the end of his life, which was uh, in, in the late 1990s. Now that that particular translation, I have to say, mercifully was never published except for little bits and pieces because it it, it really was an untranslatable book. Um, but I did end up doing his first novel, uh, Compact. Which, which I thought was much more, um, I wouldn't say more accessible, but it was a little, it lent itself a little bit better to uh, being put into English. And that actually was published some years later uh, by, by Dalkey Archive Press. Uh, but that's, that's how the book bit. That's how I got started. Uh, and then in uh, at university, which I started the following year, I actually began taking uh, some seminars. Uh, and one in particular uh, run by a, a poet and translator named Rika Lesser really got me started thinking seriously about what this business of translation is, not only from a, you know, a little bit of theory, but really from a practical point of view. The idea that the choices you make matter and that there are actually ways of, of going about this and there are such things as good and bad translations.
0: So you really plunged in because I was thinking a lot of people begin translating only after they've completed a, at least a, a first an undergraduate degree. And by that stage, we've got used, I think, to our translations being marked, to it being an academic exercise, being given a grade. Mm-hmm. And you, sort of, you sort, of, sort of circumvented that stage, as it were. And I wondered if that, if that gave you a freer sort of sense of the possibility from the start, rather than going through your undergraduate degree and then being maybe a little bit hamstrung by the, by the academic discipline, if that sort of conditioned your later approach to translation because you had such an unusual baptism.
1: Well, well, I think it might have. Um, and, and one of the points that I, I do make in the in the book In sympathy for the trader is, uh, you know, obviously I don't want to denigrate theory. I think theory is wonderful. I find it fascinating. Um, and I, I certainly went through a lot of literary theory when, in my in my studies. Which, in fact, partly because of meeting Maurice Walsh in Paris, shifted from law to to literature. Um, so I ended up being a French lit graduate. You know, translation to me has always been a practical pursuit. It's, it's about it's about the result. It's about what it does uh, rather than what it is, to borrow a, 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 a very good distinction from David Bellows. So the idea of theorizing translation, while I find it an interesting exercise, has never really been much of a help to me because I think the translation studies as a discipline, you know, on the one hand, I applaud it. I love the fact that translation is being taken seriously academically, that it's sort of, you know, moved out of the, the little sub sub category of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, underneath linguistics, underneath literary studies, and has become a, a discipline in its own right. But I sometimes find reading this theory that it seems to be theorizing, it's trying to theorize itself out of existence. And I don't entirely understand why that is. You know, yes, one could say the translation is impossible in the sense that you will never fully capture every nuance, every cultural reference, every rhythm, every you know, bit of syntax that, that the author consciously or unconsciously has layered into his or her text. And yet at the same time, translation happens every day and sometimes and very often it happens very beautifully. So, you know, there is a bit of a paradox there that you can say, well, this can't be done, but it gets done. My own preference is to stay on the side of it gets done uh, and just do it to the best of my ability.
0: And not only does it seem that the discipline of translation studies is sort of much taken with the idea of the impossibility of the task, it also seems to favor a certain kind of translation which advertises its own foreignness and its difficulty mm-hmm. and its mm-hmm. alienness to the reader. And as you say in the book, coming from the, the pragmatic side of, of writing and publishing translations, that really spells disaster, doesn't it? Because no one is going to read or no one is going to willingly seek out a translation which advertises its its, its difficulty to that extent.
1: Right. Well, I think there are a couple of things. I think on the one hand, you know, that is a bit of a reaction to, and, and an understandable reaction to the attitude toward translation as being a kind of a poor cousin or something that, you know, the secondary discipline, uh, something to be tolerated at best, something, you know, really to be denigrated. Uh, you know, the original is, is king and the translation is just, you know, what you poor people who haven't bothered to learn the language have to put up with, you know, there, there's been that attitude really through history. And certainly in academia, uh, where a translation was considered to be you know, there was something almost a little shameful about having to, to read in translation. And I remember even as an undergrad, you know, at courses of literature and translation, there was a little bit of an attitude that, well, you know, if you really put the work into it, you just learn the original language and then you wouldn't need this. You know, so the fact that this is now reacting against that and kind of, you know, valuing translation, I think is great. I think one way it's done, it, however, is to kind of push Beyond a little beyond the limit, the idea that this really needs to sound like a translation. There's also a political dimension to it. I think you know some translation studies, with perfect reason, some some theorists in translation studies are are trying to safeguard against the idea of the foreignness of the original text being brushed under the rug or airbrushed, let's say, out of out of existence by. The dictates of uh, popular taste or uh, publishing economics, which, you know, which still in a way try to disguise the fact that a book is a translation, you know, or or, or the idea that translations are, you know, they're good for you, but they're no fun. And uh, and so therefore you really try to to smooth that out as much as possible. Now, the problem is, of course, to me, paradoxically, by pumping forward the idea that it's a translation, in other words, by doing it the way certain people um, recommend, which is to adopt the foreign syntax or certain sentence structure, becomes a little bit of self-defeating exercise because all you're doing is making it even less fun and they're, you know, thereby <laughs> guaranteeing that you'll have even fewer readers. Yes. Uh, but this also is inherited a bit from some of the German theorists uh, like uh, Walter Benjamin and Friedrich Schleiermacher, you know, in the, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, posited a view of translation that in fact tried to bring the, as I said, bring the reader Closer to the original and Schleiermacher in particular was was writing and lecturing at a time when the German language was really, you know, as we know it today, was a little bit in its infancy. In other words, German was as a culture was sort of building itself uh, after having been splintered uh, up. So in a way, these were, you know, by appropriating other other uh, syntaxes and other languages and trying to sort of develop and enrich the German language, there was a little bit of an empire building uh, aspect to it. You know, what, what he was doing was basically saying, let's take all this stuff and make our German language better, mm. richer. And he really saw German as the repository of the riches of the world, linguistic riches, and that people would come to German, uh, you know, having which which had been absorbed you know, the riches of, of of English and Greek and Russian, you know, whatever it might be as, as kind of the, you know, the central place. And of course now in, in the wake of the 20th century, that that has a slightly creepy aspect to it, you know, yes. Uh, uh, yes. but, you know, I, I, I get where he was coming from at the time. The thing is that you can't, I think, really posit that today in the same way it has, it has very different resonances. And if you want to take it from the other side, which is to say that, you know uh, as, as someone like Lawrence Venuti does that English, Promotes this kind of you know easy discourse or fluidity, and that by countering that you you are respecting and uh maintaining the the primacy of the of the foreign uh, language and, and, and culture again, I think that the impulse is good, but the practical result is not so good because what you end up doing is having something that basically sounds like translationese um, yes. you know a bad translation.
0: Yes, and if you've got a tenured post, well, maybe that's fine to experiment with. But if you're a a jobbing translator, then you're going to be very harshly judged, aren't you, on something that that does read like translation ease, whatever the theoretical underpinning you might you might be able to to adduce.
1: well, absolutely. and and Edith Grossman, the the great Spanish translator, points out in um, in her book that you know a practicing translator, if you were actually to follow this, the publisher would reject it because your contract yeah. specifically states that your book is supposed to read like, good English. You know, this is, of course, assuming that the original reads like good French or good Spanish or good German, someone like Maurice Horsch, for example, you know, where it's uh, disjointed and experimental and and the, the language is, you know, sort of pulled apart in all directions intentionally. Well, then, yes, the challenge is to try to recreate a sort of an English discourse that will give you that similar effect. But the vast majority of books that are with literary books that are brought over into translation, you know, basically read pretty normally with whatever stylistic quirks and differences that the author might bring to it. And so the question is really trying to recreate, uh, and although I hate using this word, a voice, uh, a tone, you know, a, a style that works in a perfectly reasonable English, but at the same time gives a sense of the individuality of that original author. And that that's really the challenge, because. You can't write in your own voice as a translator, you're trying to create a voice that sounds like Patrick Modiano or, you know, or, or someone else, um, but in a language uh, that is not the author's own.
0: Well, you've mentioned um, Patrick Modiano a couple of times, Mark, and you, you, you've translated his work, the, 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 French, the most recent French Nobel laureate, and you talk about getting a feel for the text. So can you, can you expand a little bit more on how you, what sort of process that is of getting a feel for the text? Presumably that's a process that precedes actually starting to put English words down on, on the screen. So how, what, what, what sort of things are you doing or looking for or sensitising yourself to?
1: Uh, it's reading. Reading is really what it is. And again, it, there's no science to it. it. It is a very instinctive process. Um, there are writers who I connect with, you know, just just almost naturally, viscerally, and, and others that I don't. I'm very lucky in the sense that I have uh, a day job. So uh, translation is something that I do uh, because I love it, because I'm passionate about it. Uh, I'd like to do it, you know, as often as possible, but I don't live off of it. So unlike some translators who basically are practicing translators and that is what they do, you know, I can turn things down uh, if if I don't really connect with them. And uh, there have been, you know, some very prominent writers that people ask me, would you be interested? And I just, I just don't want to do it because I don't feel that same sense of connection. Which is not to say I haven't taken on jobs for money. Which is not to say I haven't mm-hmm. taken on jobs, you know, to to you know, to as a favor. But when it's someone like uh, Modiano or uh, another author I've translated extensively, jean Schneersohn, or 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 Flaubert. Mm-hmm. There's something in the tone, there's something in the text, there's something in the point of view and the, um, the, the way they go about constructing their, their sentences uh, and the way they go about expressing what they express that I just feel I get, you know, I understand mm. this. this. This is something that, uh, that makes sense to me. And at that point, it's, it's possible for me to then kind of reimagine what that would sound like in an English that I hope uh, represents to an English language reader, what that person is doing in the in, in original French. You know, with Modiano, it's, uh, he's got a very, uh, what seems to be a very plain spoken, straightforward style, though it's, it's obviously a lot more complex than you, know, than, than you would see on the surface. I think what, what all of those writers have in common is, uh, even though Flaubert is, you know, is a little more involved uh, linguistically, they can be very dry. Uh, none of them wears, wears his heart on his sleeve, and at the same time, there's an ability to bring forth beneath the surface a great well of emotion. And so to me, the, the real challenge is maintaining that, you know, kind of even surface and keeping the storm underneath. And, and that's something that I, I particularly respond to in, in, in writers, uh, something that I particularly love. And um, so to me, that's that's that makes work a pleasure because I'm not fighting against. My own instincts. It's, you know, I, I really feel like I'm able to plunge deep into what was going on in this text and how it was put together, and then try to reinvent that mechanism in, in another language.
0: And that presumably is a reiterative process where you you get a feel for the voice. Sorry, I've used the word voice, which you don't mm. you don't like. No, now. no, well, you, I, I started you, it. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you're you're getting a feel for that for that text, how it's working, and then you're you're attempting to create an an English. Relative or representation or recreation, or, or however you want mm-hmm. to see it. Mm-hmm. but but presumably, sometimes that that comes relatively quickly and easily, and sometimes it takes it takes longer till you feel that you've you've captured what you set out to capture.
1: Uh, it always takes long to be perfectly honest. and and you know simplicity, I think is the is the most difficult thing that there is, which is maybe also why I enjoy this challenge. Uh, you know in a funny way, someone who has a much flowerier style. It can almost be easier to to translate. Um, it's that it's that simplicity. It's the economy of language uh, that can really make you pull your hair out. And um, uh, yeah, I remember there was this one piece by uh, uh, Eshnos, who's, who, like Moriano, is a very spare writer. He, you know, he says a lot in very few words. And there was a, a story of his that I translated. And I went back later, I uh, had to look at it again some years later for something. And I realized that my English version was considerably longer than his French, just in terms of word count. Now, mm. the rule of thumb in French to English mm. is that French runs about 15 percent longer than English. Yes. So by rights, my version should have been shorter. And I was absolutely horrified. And it prompted me to actually go back and kind of re-translate or you know, revise the translation by just pulling words away and, and, and really sharpening that language. And, and finally, uh, you know, it was a much better version. Uh, unfortunately I didn't know that, you know, years ago when I did the original, but, uh, it's something that, you know, as an exercise, I'll keep a running word count when I translate someone like, like Muriano, for example, to make sure that my version does not end up being too, too many words. Um, and that sounds like an arbitrary exercise, but in fact, what it does is it forces you to really look at your phrasing and, you know, what you've said, do you need three words when maybe one will do. Uh, I think it, it sharpens the language. It, it's something that I would actually recommend to any translator is, you know, although it seems kind of a silly and arbitrary thing to do, look at the original word count of your, you know, of your text and look at, at your word count of the English and see how they relate to each other. Um, many languages run longer than, than English uh, normally. So that should tell you something, if your English is running longer than the original.
0: You mentioned, Mark, a moment ago, translating Flaubert. You translated uh, Bouvari-Pécoucher, his, mm-hmm. his, his last Great novel. Tell me, is it different when you're approaching a work from literary history, which has been translated several times before, is more remote from today in terms of its its language, its style, perhaps its preoccupations. How do you approach something of that of that nature and that stature?
1: Yes, it is more difficult, and I think for a couple of reasons. first of all, because you do have the weight of history, and Flaubert, in particular, of course, being the uh, you know the, the 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 writer of the more juste. And you know, famously read, complaining to you know to his many correspondents about how he labored over every word and every sentence, you know, and how it how it took him hours and hours and hours to produce a phrase. You you feel that, you know. I say in the book that I. I Felt the, 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 like he was like this little homunculus sitting on my shoulder, just you know, sh- shaking his head, going, "No, no, 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 no!" Every time I tried to translate uh, a phrase of Bouvard and But But uh, you know, the fact is, it also, again, is, is, is a great uh, mind sharpener. Uh, the difference in time certainly does make uh, make a difference. The um, you know, what what I tried to do with his with his text was to create a kind of a timeless English. So I'm not trying to make it sound. Intentionally 19th century in an archaic sense, but the thing about Flaubert too is that he's got a very modern sensibility. Again, this sort of you know matter-of-fact kind of tone, even while describing these horrific or or extremely funny uh, things. You know, it, it really is very um, very dry. You know, very very um, you know sort of the opposite of, of uh, slapstick. So it it wasn't that difficult in that regard to find a voice because the modern sensibility actually kind of kind of worked uh, w- with him. You know, of course, I wasn't going to put in complete anachronisms, but, uh, you know, I tried to make it sound easily accessible to a reader today. Which wasn't always the case with some of my predecessors, and and I, I should say that I generally don't go back and look at previous translations when I'm working on one. I don't want to be influenced. If I'm really stuck on something, there were you know one or two bits of terminology uh, because this Roubaron uh, Pecuchet is about these two um, characters who go through pretty much every field of human endeavor uh, that that existed in the 19th century, and so there's a lot of technical vocabulary that Flaubert researched very carefully. And some of these things, uh, you know, because their technologies no longer exist, uh, were really hard to, to, to find. You know, what particular kind of farming implement was that? So um, occasionally I would go back to the previous translations and, you know, see what they had done and, you know, just get a couple of pointers. But, but by and large, I try to stay away from it until afterward because I, I don't want, I want it to be my version. I don't want it to be a pastiche of, you know, even an unconscious pastiche of someone else's. But what I did find going back is that the language in some of them, at least, did sound a kind of kind of fussy and old-fashioned. And the weird thing about that is that I think it would have sounded fussy and old-fashioned even at the time to being English language reader. And that's the last thing that Flaubert is. Uh, He's not fussy. He's not old-fashioned. He was meticulous, but not fussy. And there was something very, um, you know, so modern about it, in fact, that Beauvoir Picochet in particular, when it was published after his death, uh, nobody got it. Uh, They, you know, they couldn't understand what he was up to. And in a way, I feel like you almost needed to go through Beckett and Ionesco and the theater of the absurd and you know and and uh, I say shows even like you know like Seinfeld, uh, where you have that kind of deadpan humor and nothing really happens to get what Flaubert was doing with Bouvard and Pécuchet. Well, you in
0: a in a similar <laughs> vein, you have some interesting things to say about translations of of Kafka's The Trial, the Muir's translation, the first translation had to do a different job, not just, not just mm-hmm. in terms of the audience it was addressing, but in terms of, of presenting Kafka to the English-speaking readership. And by the time you get to Michael Hoffman, one of the most recent translators, mm-hmm. things have really changed, and Kafka has become embedded as a, as a, a, a huge figure in, in world literature, and he's familiar, and so things become possible, not just because language has moved on, but because, I guess, literary, literary history has moved on since the first translations of Kafka.
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean the you know, there are certainly flaws with the Muir's translation. For one thing, I don't think they quite realize the quirkiness of Kafka's language. And I'm saying this as someone who, you know, has had to absorb it secondhand because unfortunately I don't read German. But, you know, I've certainly studied enough to know that, you know, Kafka's German was not a German, a standard German of the time. There was you know, there were there were things about it that on the one hand were uh, almost a little bit stagy, a little bit intentionally stiff, but there was a humor that sort of came out of that. And I think that the Muir has tried to make it, you know, more readable than it really is, uh, more user-friendly than it really was. Whereas someone like Michael Hoffman or Mark Harman, who's another one who uh, recently translated re-translated Kafka, went out of their way to try to reproduce some of that jaggedness in in the English and also to uncorrect some of the uh, corrections that, um, that the Meurists had put in. I'm thinking of uh, in, in uh, America, the, the novel that we know of uh, as America, for example, uh, which was in fact called something like The Missing, missing Person or The Man Who Disappeared in, in German. There's a, you know, this one moment where uh, Kafka, who, of course, had never set foot in, in the United States in his life, uh, has a bridge going from Manhattan to Boston. And what he really meant, of course, was a bridge going from Manhattan to Brooklyn. But to him, you know, Brooklyn, Boston, all the same thing. Now, the Muirs, you know, quietly corrected that, whereas uh, Harmon and and Hoffman kind of reinstate Kafka's misapprehension because it's part of his literary history. But the point, as, as you said, and that I point out, is that, Kafka back in the 1930s, um, you know, when, when, when these were originally being translated, mm-hmm. nobody knew who he was. You know, they barely knew who he was in German. His reputation was only beginning to, you know, to, to emerge, um, thanks to, to Max Brod. So the Muirs in a way had, you know, a double duty, which was not only to bring these books over to English, but to create uh, a context for Kafka and to create a persona and of course, now that's no longer the case. Kafka, you know, as I said, no longer has anything to prove. And so we can go back and take a look at the, the quirks, the flaws, you know, and try to be more um, uh, more respectful of them. But I don't think it was a lack of respect on the Muir's part. I think that their job was simply to make this writer work for, for an English language audience at the time.
0: Would you say, Mark, that, that being a writer in your own right, as well as a translator, um, that those those are both mutually nourishing practices that one one helps you to do the other the other better.
1: Oh, absolutely! And then, in fact, there's a third component to that, which is my work as a publisher and an editor. Um, I mean, I, I you know, as I started out as a as a text editor, all of those writing, translating, and and editing force you to be extremely attentive to the way language works and whether it works and how well it's working and when it doesn't work, how to you know get it back into uh, to a place where where it is working. Um, and it also gives you a wonderful objectivity, uh, and uh, you know where I can. I'm 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 lucky in the sense that I can look at what I do and be sort of ruthless about it in a way that one isn't necessarily always able to do as as a writer, at least not at first. And you know. Now, one might look at the book and say, yes, and you could have been a little more ruthless, <laughs> you know, which is always possible. Uh, I'm sure I'll go back in, you know, in five years and look at certain pages and think, hmm, didn't really need that. But, uh, you know, at, at least I feel like I have a, a little bit of a leg up there. Um, uh, and, and I'll give you an example of this. My my first book, which was uh, a biography of uh, the surrealist under Breton called the Revolution of the Mind, that book. Is, is long. The published version is something like 700 pages. And, you know, I had, I had more time in those days, I guess. Uh, but the original manuscript was nearly twice as long. And when I sent it into the publisher, uh, you know, it, it was, a, it was a, it was a crate practically. And the joke around for our used to be that it was the manuscript that needed its own office. And, uh, it came back <laughs> from, from the publisher with a short note, um, saying, this is terrific. Cut it in half. It was it absolutely, absolutely right. <laughs> But the thing is that I'd, you know, it had taken him a month or two to, to slog through it, and uh, in that time, I had been able to get a bit of a distance, and the, the editorial, my, my editorial side managed to kick in. And in fact, I was able to go back and slash, 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 uh, and, and realize at the time that in fact this was getting better and better the more and more I cut. But of course, when you're writing it, you're you know you're so into the subject and you're so into the research that all of this seems to be unbearably important. Um, and I think it's the same thing with translation as well. You know, you, you need to you need to remember that you're writing for someone who's going to be reading this cold, who doesn't necessarily have the same relationship to the text that you do, the same investment in it you know writing is a, is a process of seduction you you speak to someone in a way that is going to draw him or her in and and part of that means not going overboard and not being self indulgent
0: well i guess today we've been talking mainly about the, um, the supply side, the production side, the translators <laughs> side, but there's also the, the demand side, to put it in, in crudely economic terms. Mm-hmm. And I really liked your, um, your distinction between viewing translations as liqueurs rather than as medicine. And you, you definitely detect in the, in the sort of intellectual, the cultural conversation, a certain tendency to, to advocate translations because they're good for you, rather than because you might actually enjoy them, and your your book is a sort of counterblast against that.
1: Right. Well, I, you know, again, I'm perfectly sympathetic to that to that point of view, and I think that some wonderful translators and 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 proponents of translation, uh, you know, really are trying to get people to understand that you know these are not something to be feared that you know you should read them they are good for you. But I think the problem with that is that, you know, nobody wants to be told what's, what's good for them. People yes. rarely do something because simply because it's good for them. They mostly do it because it, it it gives them pleasure. They they enjoy it. So what I'd like to get away from is the sense that translation is like medicine. You know, I guess I better read this Italian novel because mm, it's, you know, it's good for me and it makes me seem culture. The fact is they can actually be wonderful. Uh, they can be just as enjoyable as anything written originally in English. They can be just as meaningful, you know? So my, my qualm with the discourse of, you know, translation is something that's a, an ethical responsibility, you know, as say publishers should publish more translations, you know, have a moral responsibility to do it. And I'm thinking, why? You know, that's, that's not really the argument that would sway me and most people. I think the argument is that, you know, open yourself up to the fact that there are some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful books out there. And just because, it you know, underneath the author's name, it says translated by doesn't mean they're any less wonderful or meaningful to you the really great books, uh, you know, the things that have really touched us. I mean, when we think about the writers who have meant the most to us, you know, Kafka, Dostoevsky, Proust, I mean, you know, all of these, we we almost have absorbed them into our literature, uh, into our own, you know, into our own sensibility. And we kind of forget that actually these came from somewhere else. And that if you leave yourself open to them, there's an entire wide world out there that is, you know, that can only enrich you and that can be quite enjoyable. Uh, as long as you get away from the idea that, you know, I'm going to have to hold my nose and take the spoonful of translation, you know, and grimace. It's not, it's not <laughs> castor oil. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you mentioned that there's, there's really a sort of subgenre of translators' memoirs or sort of reflective books on translation, of which, of which yours is, of course, one. And there's also, there are also books by Edith Grossman, David Belos, mm-hmm. and you've mentioned mm-hmm. Greg Rabassa. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, unlike a book by a a film director or a theatre director or a, an opera singer. These books, there's a sort of sense that they have to be advocates for translation, that there's an argument still to be made, an argument still to be won, and that clarifying what the aim of translation is is still a job to be done in the, in the, in the public sphere, you know, among people who read books and people who perhaps who give this a second thought. It's still not a, it's still not a settled argument,
1: is true. I mean, for one thing, I don't think anyone, you know, in this day and age is is, is questioning the value of cinema or opera, you know, or, or uh, you know some of these other art forms that you know that, that you mentioned, uh, you know, and, and for which one can write one's memoirs, or, or even writing, you know, as a memoir by 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 a, by an author, uh, you know, translation does still feel, unfortunately, that it has something to prove, and I think part of that is that even um, well, it's a couple, a couple of things. I think, you know, on the one hand, uh, as I said, you know, translation studies does tend to kind of pull it out of uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the the realm of the everyday, you know, and, and mm-hmm. make it seem more arcane maybe than, than it is, you know, for the specialist mm-hmm. only, um, or something impossible. And therefore, why bother? Why should I bother reading this? Because it's only, a, you know, uh, there are a lot of very, very cultured people, very re- well read, who still instinctively feel that translation, uh, a book in translation is not really reading the book. You know, you're reading a kind of a, a second best. Whereas I like to think of translations as being works of literature in their own right, uh, you know, if, if done well, you know, there, there, there is a certain hostility, I think, that that um, that obtains, uh, you know, sometimes even on the part of writers, uh, you know, some writers are, 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 are very happy to be translated. And some of them, you know, will look at it merely as something that you tolerate because, well, it's, you know, it's an extra source of income, uh, you know, uh, another royalty check from some far flung country, if you're lucky but not really the real thing. And, you know, I think that that attitude as well uh, obtains. And, you know, even among people who I think are more kindly disposed toward translation, there's also not a lot of understanding of what that job entails. And I'm constantly surprised that even in this day and age with, with the increased intention that has been, attention that has been paid to translation, a lot of people still feel that it's a matter of just, you know, you replace words, they're equivalents. You know, a good translator will simply know that this means that and the other means the other thing. And it's a
0: good, a good dictionary skills and a big vocabulary.
1: <laughs> exactly right. If you have the right, you know, the right thesaurus, then you know, anybody could do it. My kid could do it. You know, whereas uh, some of these memoirs, you know, I think the value of them, aside from the fact that some of them can be really, really fun to read. I mean, Ribasa was, you know, was, was a stitch. Um, uh, you know, also concentrate on the fact and underscore the fact, as I try to do in my book, that there's a lot more involved to this that you are trying to juggle you know, not only vocabulary, but you know, but uh linguistic structure and culture, cultural information and um, you know, rhythm and and uh sound and and uh and you know sonority and humor and you know and sensibilities and all these different things that go into making a text work and that somehow you need with a different set of words and a different set of cultural expectations to bring all of that forward or as much of it as you possibly can in a way that's going to resonate with a reader in your time and place, because if you don't, no matter how wonderful the original is, you basically flattened it out and botched it. And that book is not going to have the same resonance. Now, you know, there are other factors as well. Uh, you know, even great translations, sometimes, through no fault of their own, just, just don't make it. Who, who knows why? But sometimes a book that can be, you know, and you see this all the time, a book that can be extremely popular in its, in its country of origin, or even in several other countries, just doesn't work here. And You know, there there are a number of factors, but one of them at times could be, in fact, that the translation just has failed to bring across the magic. It might be completely accurate. It might tell you exactly what the author said, but there's that spark in there that just doesn't work. And trying to figure out what that spark is and how you get to it and then how you try to convey it in another time and place is, you know, is really more what translation is about. It's not, you know, as I say in the book, it's not about replacing one floor tile with another, Uh, You know, there's, there's, you have to think of it in not in terms of words, but in terms of sentences, or in terms of paragraphs, or even pages, you know, to try to get the, the flow.
0: I I really like the floor tile metaphor. That's one that will definitely uh, go into my repertoire about what translation is not. I was talking to Mark Polizotti about sympathy for the traitor, a translation manifesto, available now from the MIT Press in paperback. You can find out more about it on MIT Press's website. You'll find 50 other interviews in this series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. Or you can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts. It's on Apple, Stitcher, Soundcloud, Acast, Spotify and Google. And you can catch up on any interviews you've missed and even leave a review. I'll be back again next week with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.